Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Pals punch. The Fed chief says don't bet against America, but more help is needed. Moderna's medicine, the biotech firm, makes vaccine progress. Stocks soar pre-market. And blurred vision, SoftBank sees its worst losses ever. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome to all our first movers around the world. As always, I hope everyone had a safe and a restful weekend or a good start to the week, whichever applies to you. Lots coming up on the show this morning, including Huawei's chief security officer on the latest U.S. restrictions, what their response is. And David Rubenstein, too, co-founder of private equity giant, the Carlyle Group, will be wading in on his views on the global recovery reality. So part of that reality rests on whether and when a vaccine is developed. Take a look at futures spiking higher this morning on news, as I mentioned there, from biotech firm Moderna. The firm's vaccine study is producing some positive results. We've got all the details and analysis very shortly. It comes after Fed Chief Jay Powell spoke again this weekend, saying growth is likely this year. But he also reiterated that the Federal Reserve and Congress will likely need to do more. He said the Federal Reserve does have the ammunition required. For now, the United States continues its process of reopening this week. That includes major U.S. automakers getting back to production. The big unknown here is what shape some of the smaller businesses in their supply chains have been left in as a result of the shutdown. That's going to be key going forward. In the meantime, Apple set to reopen more than 25 U.S. stores this week. More than 100 around the world have already reopened. Let me give you a look at the global snot stock snapshot, get my words in gear, Europe in the green, as you can see, Italy announcing it will begin welcoming tourists next month and Asian stocks managing to post gains this Monday's session too. Despite the Japanese economy falling into recession, the government, of course, they're already talking about adding more fiscal support to the economy. So I think, as you can tell, the themes of today's show already taking shape. The science and the stimulus to help us on the path to recovery. Let's get to our drivers right now. U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell says a vaccine may be the only real cure for the U.S. economy, but he adds he's confident of a recovery even without one. He spoke on CBS's 60 Minutes. This economy will recover. It may take a while. It may take a, a period of time. It could stretch through the end of next year. We really don't know. Can there be a recovery without a reasonably effective vaccine? Assuming there's not a, a second wave of, uh, of, uh, of the coronavirus, I think you'll see the economy recover steadily through the second half of this year. For the economy to fully recover, people will have to be fully confident, and that, that may have to await the arrival of, of, of a vaccine. Christine Romans joins me now twice in one week for Jay Powell, Christine. And I read the whole transcript. He's great at tailoring what he says to an appropriate audience. And this, I think, was a, a sort of a push for more confidence from the American people. But again, at the same time, Congress and the Federal Reserve likely needs to do more. 
Absolutely. You know, he's saying the right now is really painful, and he acknowledged, right. you know, it's hard to put in words the pain uh, and suffering of American families and, and workers who are out of work. That's the second time he has acknowledged that uh, in, in the last week. You're absolutely right. But he looks to the future, and he says, we can get through this. This isn't like a housing bubble. It's not like the financial crisis. This time is a different kind of a crisis that we are, uh, the economy was in good shape heading into this, and he thinks we can get back there. The timeline, the timing, I think, is interesting. You'll notice that he said, assuming there's not a second wave of the coronavirus. So that's really important here. Uh, we'll get through this painful period, depression-like period right now, but it won't be a depression. Sometime next year, you'll start to get back to normal. But he, he said end of next year could be a, a, a likelihood here, and a lot depends on that vaccine. Yeah, a lot depends on the vaccine. A lot depends on what kind of shape businesses and individuals, consumers are in coming out of this. We have some kind of blueprint to the end of June, July, let's call it. We've given billions of dollars to small businesses in the United States. You and I have huge reservations over how that money can be used and that greater flexibility is needed. But at the same time, if you can perhaps adjust that so that people have an incentive to go back to work rather than be paid to stay at home, you perhaps find a better balance. Looks like Congress, Treasury, considering all of these things. Absolutely. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that that Paycheck Protection Program could have some tweaks to make it a little bit easier for the loan forgiveness for these small business owners who have some restrictions on, on, on them, quite frankly. I mean, honestly, when they were writing this legislation, I don't think you could have foreseen that this was not going to be all over and said and done um, in June, right? So a little bit more flexibility there. But, you know, there's another big package probably coming down the pike. They're going to fight over it, I'm sure. Sometime in June, maybe you're going to see some more uh, stimulus. The Democrats and Republicans are on different, you know, different sides on this at the moment. But Jay Powell making it pretty clear, I think, that there needs to be more support for American families going forward, not just what we're seeing here. You know, he said in that interview, he said he, they need to keep workers in their homes, uh, keep them paying the bills, keep families solvent. So I think you're going to be talking about another round of payments to American families and maybe an extension of unemployment benefits, the enhanced unemployment benefits for longer. All of these things, I think, are going to be up for negotiation in the days and weeks ahead. Because quietly telling lawmakers what to do makes a change, doesn't it? Even if it's <laughs> yeah. a very carefully done. Christine Romans, thank you for that. All right, some promising news now from a company working on a coronavirus vaccine. US-based Moderna says early results from its trials show participants developed antibodies against the virus. The news has seen Moderna's stock skyrocket. I mean, that's not the only thing. Futures pre-market in U.S. markets and globally also rocketing on this. Everyone has high hopes. Senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, I know what you're going to do. You're going to say curb your enthusiasm a little bit. There were only eight people, I believe, in this study, but there's a reason to be optimistic, too. Julia, I don't even need to show up. You know exactly no, what I'm I, going to I say. That going. is. Uh... <laughs> That is exactly right. There is reason to have some enthusiasm, but we do need to temper it. This was eight people. What they found is when they were vaccinated, they developed what are called neutralizing antibodies. So these are antibodies that not only bind to the virus, but disable it from infecting cells. Again, this is only eight people, and we don't know exactly how this will work in real life. It's one thing to see something in a lab. It's another thing to see it in real life. But they did notice that the levels of these antibodies were just as high if not higher than people who had a natural infection and then recovered. So I spoke this morning with Dr. Tal Zaks. He is the chief medical officer at Moderna. Let's take a listen. 
these antibodies were proven to be able to block the ability of the virus to infect cells. So this is really a very first important step in the journey towards having a vaccine available for the people who need it the most. What it tells us is even at the lowest dose that we tested, the 25 microgram dose, we are already seeing an immune response at the level of people who've been infected with this virus and are believed now not to uh, be susceptible to further disease. Now, again, speaking of tempering enthusiasm, it is there have been other vaccines that have gotten to this point. But when you try them in the real world, they haven't worked as well. So let's take a look at the timeline for studying this vaccine further. So far, Moderna has vaccinated somewhere between 60 and 100 people. In July, they will start large scale clinical trials. That's typically tens of thousands of people. And that's when you know if it works in the real world. Dr. Zachs, who we just heard from, thinks that a vaccine could be available between January and June if all goes well. But Julia, that is somewhat aspirational. He's not saying it will happen. He just thinks that that is a reasonable timeline to to hope for going forward. And we will maintain our hope. Elizabeth Cohen, great to have you on the show. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for um, pouring over those details. Chinese President Xi Jinping says Beijing has been transparent with the world about the coronavirus outbreak, contrary to accusations from the United States that it covered up the truth. International support is growing for an investigation into the origins of the virus. President Xi was speaking remotely to the World Health Organization, which has also been under pressure over its response to the pandemic. Ivan Watson is live in Hong Kong. For us, Ivan, I would expect the Chinese president to say nothing less than, than what he said today. But they also are making moves to provide greater financing support to the World Health Organization. So the opposite move of what the United States is doing, a stark contrast there. Yeah, I mean, what's conspicuously absent at this virtual meeting of the World Health Assembly is an American presence. Uh, It's an unusual annual meeting because this year, People can't gather in Geneva for it. So it's being done on video conference. There have been some glitches throughout. The South African president uh, didn't show up. Uh, his, his connection didn't quite come together. Uh, we heard from a number of heads of states, uh, the leaders of France, of Germany, uh, of China as well, uh, did not hear from the U.S. president uh, at all. There is a draft resolution for this gathering, which is taking place amid this unprecedented global pandemic uh, from more than 100 countries calling for an impartial, independent and comprehensive evaluation of kind of how COVID-19 blew up into this global pandemic. Now, Australia had initially called for an investigation into China because, of course, coronavirus, this was first discovered in the Chinese city of Wuhan in December. The Chinese government has really bristled at any suggestion like this and and attacked Australia for these suggestions, but it can't uh, oppose the fact that more than 100 countries are calling for this. After all, their economies have been brought to the halt. Their citizens are dying. In the end, Xi Jinping did address the assembly, again, virtually. He pledged two billion U.S. dollars over two years to help battle COVID. He pledged more help to the African continent as well, uh, endorsed the World Health Organization's involvement here. Meanwhile, the leader of the World Health Organization has come out and said that he will, in fact, uh, agree to an independent evaluation at the earliest appropriate moment to review and, and, and learn any lessons drawn to prevent a repeat of what the world is experiencing right now. 
Yeah, I think the world agrees with that. We can never be placed in this situation again. So whatever needs to be learned, lessons, questions need to be asked and, and, and those lessons learned. Ivan Watson, thank you so much for that. Now, as I mentioned earlier on the show, Japan now officially in recession, the world's third largest economy shrinking 0.9% between January and March. It's a blow to a country that was already struggling with its finances even before the pandemic hit. As Kaori and Joji explains. Japan's economy is back in recession for the first time in four and a half years. GDP slipped 0.9% on the quarter in the first three months of this year which translates into a drop of 3.4% on an annualized basis. But economists say the situation could get far worse and that this quarter, Japan's economy may be slipping at its fastest rate since the end of the Second World War. Exports are falling as supply chains are crippled, manufacturing is drying up, and consumption also remains very weak because shoppers are forced to stay at home. The Japanese government is likely to top up the $1.1 trillion in stimulus measures that it has already announced with fresh moves by the end of the month. It's preparing billions of dollars to try and get Japanese companies to move their manufacturing out of China and back home here in Japan. And that's similar to the refrains that we're hearing from the U.S., which is also trying to decrease its dependence on China. That's the latest from Tokyo. I'm Kaori and Joji. One example of a Japanese company hurting right now, SoftBank reporting its biggest loss ever. Also, Alibaba founder Jack Ma is leaving SoftBank's board. Sharice Pham is with us. Sharice, we were expecting eye-watering losses given this company's investments. WeWork is a classic example. Uber, another one. But, oh boy, these are some really, really steep and painful losses. Oh boy, indeed. This was a bad day for SoftBank. Historic <laughs> losses. They lost Jack Ma and Masayoshi's son talking about unicorns falling into the valley of coronavirus. This company, of course, has been hammered by the COVID-19 pandemic. The Vision Fund in particular has suffered enormous losses. WeWork is now a fraction of what it was worth before it planned to IPO, before that IPO was botched. Uber, of course, is suffering huge losses. All of that because of the restrictions that millions of people around the world are still under. No one is, very few people are traveling. Many people are hunkered down at home. And that is not good for the ride-hailing business or the co-working shared space. And uh, Son calling this time a crisis. He was a lot more somber today than he has been in past presentations. But he was also at times comical, if maybe by accident. He likened the coronavirus to a valley into which some of the biggest vision fund, billion-dollar tech fund companies could fall into. Have a look and a listen. Because of the uh, body of coronavirus, all of that uh, sudden happened, and unicorns been dropping into such valley, and uh, this is a big uh, crisis for many of us. But even under such circumstances, some of them been able to jump up the valley and flying up with their wings to catch up with their uh, momentum. So a few unicorns will be able to fly over that valley of the coronavirus and make it out on the other end of this crisis in good shape. But until then, SoftBank reporting historic losses, 
$18 billion in operating losses for the Vision Fund, uh, and that was enough to wipe out any gains that the SoftBank uh, other businesses had been made in the carrier unit and the chip-making unit, Julia. Yes. More focus on unicorns lost and lost magic than anything else. But those, those presentations are always a unique, let's call them that. Shuri's fan, thank you so much for that update there. All right, still to come, Huawei hits back. The Chinese tech giant says it's, quote, categorically opposed to new U.S. restrictions. We speak to one of the company's top U.S. executives in the wake of Huawei's first public comments. And don't bet against America, so says the Fed's Jay Powell. Well, I discuss the economic outlook with David Rubenstein, co-founder of private equity firm The Carlyle Group. That's all coming up. Stay with First Move. Welcome back to First Move live from New York this Monday, where U.S. futures are in the green, helped along by word from biotech firm Moderna reporting progress on a COVID-19 vaccine, as we've been discussing. In the meantime, shares of Grubhub are also rising pre-market amid reports that it's rejected the latest takeover offer from Uber. Talks between the two companies, however, are said to be continuing. U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar coming out against any proposed deal yesterday, calling it bad for competition and consumers. Now in Huawei's first official statement since the U.S. restricted its access to chip suppliers, the Chinese tech giant called the new rules arbitrary and pernicious. It says the move will, quote, inevitably hit its business and outlined the global cost of the ruling networks in 170 countries worth hundreds of billions of dollars will be hit and three billion customers impacted, the company says. Joining us now, Andy Purdy, Chief Security Officer for Huawei Technologies USA. Andy, great to have you on the show. You've pointed out what you see as the bigger costs here. Um, to global infrastructure and, and demand, but this is a devastating blow for Huawei specifically, surely. Well, it's, it certainly harms us, and we're not sure just how much it's going to hurt us. Uh, this represents a significant escalation, an unfair one, we believe, by the U.S. government and its efforts to, to hurt Huawei, to, to hurt China, and it's being made irrespective of the impact on the significant jobs in the U.S. semiconductor space. There were reports overnight, Andy, that Taiwan Semiconductor, a TSMC, has halted new Huawei orders. Can you confirm that? I, I cannot yet, no. But that, if they did decide to comply with the U.S. ruling, would be a further devastating blow, surely. This is exactly what the U.S. is trying to achieve. Well, we expect that companies like that, that get a number of their components from American uh, semiconductor companies, will in fact comply with the, uh, the U.S. government structure. Absolutely, yes. How much of the business are we talking about here, Andy? When I look at it, it's smartphones, it's laptops, it's networking equipment for 5G, the base stations. This is critical when I look at the broader international business for Huawei. Well, it is. And, and you see that last year, the entity list, the restrictions, the U.S. government restrictions on the ability of American companies to sell to Huawei had about a $12 billion impact. Uh, on Huawei's revenue. We worked through it, so we still had a revenue increase last year. We're going to work through this. We're not sure what the outcome is going to be, but we're going to be fine in the end. But if, if we're forced uh, to not buy from American companies or companies that buy from American companies, it's going to have a long-term impact on American jobs. They will not come back. But it's not just about American jobs here, surely. This is about the survival of your company. 
no questions about the survival of our company, but frankly, from my perspective, I'm more concerned about American jobs and with 40 or 50,000 direct American jobs, depending on the ability of 300 American companies to sell the Huawei, that's a great concern. And those who want to hurt us to hurt China aren't thinking about it dispassionately on the potential impact on American jobs and the fact that although there will be some short-term harm for us, in the end, we're going to be fine. What about response from the Chinese government here? Chinese state media on Friday suggested that Apple, Qualcomm, even Boeing orders could be impacted if China decides to respond. Do you want to see a response that in some way tries to help protect Huawei? I think escalation in any situation, whether it was the earlier situation with tariffs or this situation, is a bad thing. It's important for folks to sit down and talk these things through. The tit for tat for tariffs, the increasing escalation in this respect. I would hate to see China put it, put restrictions on the ability of Apple to sell into China. We have to have conversations to resolve these issues. And I believe we can do that. And I think it's important for us to do it now rather than waiting 30 or 40 years. Andy, you've been pushing for a transparency initiative. And yet in the last week, the FBI has reported that uh, Chinese connected hackers were trying to access COVID-19 research. Trust couldn't be any lower at this point, And Huawei's at the center of that. Well, we're not the center. We're not at the center of what you just talked about in, in terms of the hacking. But certainly we support greater international efforts to fight cybercrime, to hold people accountable for cybercrime and organizations and governments. We support stronger intellectual property protection, stronger standards in independent testing. We believe that the global community has to not decouple, but strengthen standards so that we can address real cybersecurity risk and we can fight the kind of malicious activity that you're talking about. Do you think that's possible under this administration or do you have to wait for the next one or perhaps if this one remains the one after that? Well, I, I can't predict what's going to happen in terms of the, the, the presidential election. I do believe that the kinds of things that we support doing on the international stage, whether or not Huawei's allowed to, to sell into the U.S. or buy from the U.S., those efforts to reduce the frequency, impact, and risk of malicious activity in cyberspace, they have to go on. And I think there are folks within this administration who believe that's important and will do something about it. And the effort to strengthen intellectual property protection and have better attribution of where cyber attacks are coming from or thefts of intellectual property. I think this administration supports those kinds of activities. And I hope they'll also weigh into international standards efforts because we need the U.S. to be involved in 5G standards much more substantially. Andy, there'll be people that are watching this saying that you're lying, you're forced to lie and that Huawei can't be trusted. And this is the point that the U.S. administration is trying to make. What do you say to those people that remain skeptical to try and change their minds? And it ties with, I know, your Global Analyst Summit today, the future of Huawei. Tie those two things together. How do you rebuild trust and what does the future look like? Well, I think it's important for people to listen to the conversation. I'm not saying to trust Huawei. I'm not saying to trust China. I'm not saying to trust anyone. In fact, we need a mechanism and a framework to address risk where we don't trust anyone. There are five nations in the world who have the ability to virtually implant hardware and software. I commend to you a report that was just released two hours ago by the East-West Institute calling for a global framework for standards and conformance programs. Those kinds of activities, if we can build and strengthen international framework, 
that's going to help what Huawei is trying to do in terms of in terms of our revenues. But we're in partnerships around the world and active in platforms, whether it's 5G or, or mobile devices, the use of artificial intelligence. They're going to be an increase of like $23 trillion in gross domestic product by 2025. These collaborative international efforts need to maintain a uniform set of standards and conformance programs so we can hold everyone accountable. That's important for the benefit of the U.S. and the global economy. You're talking about some form of independent arbitrator here to take a look at the technology to understand what the risks are and ensure that whoever's using the hardware or the software software is safe. Would Huawei be willing to come to the table and say, look, this is our technology. You analyze it. Take a look at what we're providing. We are safe. We are not only open to that, we are doing that uh, in terms of what our customers can do in our internal center and, for example, our external transparency center in Brussels. And the kind of effort the East-West Institute is calling for, we support that. We support independent conformance. And frankly, the 5G standards of the world that are so important, U.S. has not been very active in that. It's very important as we roll out the new business scenarios of 5G that the U.S. government and private companies be part of that effort. So that way we're all working together so we can get the benefits of technology while we address the risk in a way that's transparent. So ask folks, come in, come to our facilities in China. We want to open up, open up the kimono and, and show what we do and how we do it and invite experts to give us their ideas and the ideas for us and our competitors as well. Yeah, more communication, more information, more transparency, desperately required. Andy, always great to chat to you. Thank you for that. Andy Purdy, Chief Security Officer for Huawei Technologies USA. Great to chat with you. All right, the market open is next. Stay with First Move. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are beginning the week with solid gains this morning amid word that a COVID-19 vaccine from biotech firm Moderna is showing progress in early tests. That's the picture. Investors are also heartened perhaps by new comments from Fed Chair Jay Powell. Powell said in a 60 Minutes interview last night that the U.S. economy may not completely recover until next year, but his overall message was one of hope. We have highly industrious people we have the most dynamic economy in the world, and uh, you know we're the home of so much of, of the great technology in the world. So in, in the long run, I would say the U.S. economy will recover. We'll get back to the place we were in February. We'll get to an even better place than that. I'm, I'm highly confident of that. So I think um, we're going to need to help each other through this, and, and we will. And the message there, too, likely more support from the Fed and Congress needed. But he also said in the interview that one should never bet against the U.S. economy. A potent message for investors and business leaders trying to navigate these challenging times. Joining us now, David Rubenstein, the co-founder and co-chairman of private equity giant the Carlyle Group. He's in contact, constant contact with business and investment leaders as they try to plan for the future. David, great to have you with us. Uh, fantastic to have you My once pleasure. again on First Move. Your peer-to-peer -peer conversations has also gone virtual. I've watched your interviews with the NASDAQ chief, with Eric Schmidt, of course, too. What's your key takeaway from the business leaders, their message at this moment? 
I think business leaders think that this is something we haven't seen before. Mm. There's never been a, uh, a situation where we had an economy that went down as much as this and also a healthcare pandemic at the same time. But I think most business leaders feel they have adapted reasonably well, but they recognize it's going to take some time to recover. And until there is a vaccine, I don't think people are going to feel completely comfortable going back to work in the way that they did before. That was part of the message that Jay Powell gave yesterday. Are we putting too much emphasis and hope? I watched U.S. markets this morning jumping at the results from Moderna and it's eight people in a in a trial. Are we putting too much emphasis on a vaccine? And what are your views on timing of a recovery here? Well, recoveries after recessions since World War II generally take about three years before you get back to where you were before. That doesn't mean you have a partial recovery. You can have a partial recovery before. But getting back to the peak of where you were before the recession since World War II generally takes three years. But I don't know it will take that long in this case. It might take a year, as Jay Powell said. I don't know exactly for sure. Moderna is uh, very promising. I should disclose my son-in-law used to work at the Moderna. He owns some stock there. I don't own any stock there, but it's promising. And I am going to be interviewing the CEO of Moderna sometime soon. And I think they have a very promising uh, technique, but it's it hasn't been proven before in terms of the technique they're using. But clearly the market is looking for a vaccine. I think a vaccine would make people feel more comfortable going back to work. If there is no vaccine, if it takes three or four years for a vaccine to develop, clearly people are going to go back to work uh, before then, but I think they'll do much more social distancing and you'll have masks and a different kind of work environment than before. And I think more, 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 more and more people will be comfortable working remotely. What are you having in terms of conversations internally about getting people back to work? Are we going to be in an environment where far fewer people are operating in an office environment where they can? And that may be for the foreseeable future. I think most employers have been surprised how uh, productive it has been to get things done remotely. Not all businesses can be done remotely. Supermarkets and so forth cannot be. But things that can be done remotely have worked reasonably well. Some have taken a while to catch up to the remote style uh, that is now more prevalent. But I do think that a lot of employees are worried about going back to health, particularly they don't have childcare, And therefore, I think they're going to uh, work remotely for a while. And I think it'll become relatively normal. And I think it's uh, something that people will come to except, and I don't think it'll be seen as unusual one year from now. On the other hand, there's no doubt that if you go back to work physically and you actually are in the same working environment with other people, it probably is more productive. But there's no doubt that productivity has increased remotely from what it was just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we've surprised ourselves. Talk to me about how you view what we're seeing at this moment. If I just look at the stock market performance, there have been winners in tech firms. There have been those that have survived this shutdown period. There have been ones that have been desperately hit, like retail, like tourism, for example. And we've got questions over timing of recovery for them. How do you judge value in these markets, David? Very, very difficult to know. Uh, clearly, people are on uncertain about what the future is going to be. So that's why you see such so much vacillation in the markets, because there's so much uh, uncertainty and a little piece of information can make markets go up or down. The industries that have been the hardest hit, travel-related industries, airlines, for example, or hotels or restaurants, those are going to take some time to recover, obviously, though they will come back in time. I think the industries that have been the most uh, uh, helped by all this, I won't say help, but I should say that have done quite well are the technology industries, for sure, or companies like Amazon that have done quite well. And I suspect they'll continue to see a lot of strength uh, as we go forward. It matters for you guys, too, though, if you're looking to 
monetize deals that you're currently in, the exit point for your deals. What's your thinking on that too? Well, private equity has done reasonably well during good and bad times. Uh, during the last recession, private equity firms, actually, uh, they did pretty well, but they're like everybody else. Private equity firms mostly care about the health of their employees, the health of the employees that work in their companies. Those are the most important considerations. After that, then they can worry about how the existing companies they've made investments in are performing. And then after that is okay, and they seem to be all right if they are, then they can look at new investments. And new investments made at a bottom of a recession can turn out to be good if you, if you know what you're doing and you have some good luck. And many of the best investments made in the last 10 years or so came from investments that were made near the bottom of the last recession. You know, it's interesting when I look at the performance of private equity since the financial crisis, you consistently outperformed stock markets. We've talked about this in the past, too. As we look about the evolution of the money management industry, does it make sense perhaps for a BlackRock, for example, to look at buying someone such as yourselves just to get that alternative investment potential and the upside that could come over the coming years? What do you think? Well, we're not for sale, and I don't think all the large private equity firms are for sale. They're in pretty good shape, and they have a lot of dry powder, and I think their people and their investors are quite happy with them today. I don't know whether large money managers are interested in getting more into this space or not. It does have the advantage of having a long, tied-up capital. So typically, the capital we have is kind of tied up for 10 years or so, and therefore, that makes it relatively appealing. But I think the private equity firms um, have, uh, have done reasonably well in making certain that their existing companies are in pretty good shape. And while no, nobody is a magician and some companies won't work out perfectly, on the whole, private equity investments are in reasonably good shape right now from what I know. Uh, clearly, there'll be some ups and downs, and we can't know exactly how the economy is going to go. But the private equity industry, I think, is in reasonably good shape, though we could always use you know, additional support or help. But uh, I think we're in reasonably good shape. Um, that was a clear message, not for sale, but <laughs> David, I'll take that away. You've also said something else which caught my eye, and it was about reflecting on the fragility of life throughout this period. And I just, yes. I just wondered well, what your views were on this and whether we behave differently, whether we're better as a result of what we've experienced. Yes. I mean, I just give you my personal reflection. I am 70 years old, and as a baby boomer, I've thought uh, since the baby boomers are the most important generation the world's ever seen, we would live forever because God would want us to be here forever. But as I recognize the severity of this situation, I realize that it's possible that if I got infected, uh, I could be gone in a week without even seeing my, my, my family. And um, it's an unusual situation. In, in people my age, generally, are 70, 77 percent of the people my age uh, are still alive. In other words, people, my, I should put it this way, people born in 1949, 77% or so of them are still alive. It means they're out roughly 23% or not. But why am I so lucky? I don't know. I, I'm still alive and I suspect I will be around for a while. But if I were to catch this disease, I would realize that the chance of surviving might not be good for my, uh, for my age. So it has made people like me feel their mortality in ways we haven't felt before. Uh, generally, baby boomers have been thinking we'll live forever. But I think this has made us all realize that uh, life is much more fragile than we've thought before. And therefore, if you want to get certain things done on your bucket list, you might have to do them sooner. Uh, but you have to also be very careful about your health. Um, it's, it's one thing to say I'm in great shape at 70 years old. It's another thing to recognize that this disease 
does not recognize you're being in great shape necessarily, and you could be gone relatively quickly. So it has scared a lot of people my age, and it scared me too, but I recognize that nothing I can do about it except try to be socially distanced from other people, wear masks, and practice the best hygiene I can. Yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it? To value the things that well, perhaps you didn't value younger, enough you before. You don't worry about this as much as, uh, as I do. You're much younger. But clearly, when you get to a certain age, uh, I used to see myself as an aging baby boomer. Now, people look at me as a senior citizen. So when I go to the super supermarket, there's a super uh, senior citizen line. I can go in that. I never realized I was a senior citizen uh, until this crisis came along. And people now look at me differently. People call me all the time and say, are you OK? I guess they're kind of wondering because of my age, am I not OK? But so far, I'm OK. Certainly senior in intellect, so if nothing else, and young at heart. Great to have you with us. Stay safe, please, and great to get your wisdom on the show this morning. David Rubenstein there, the co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group. Great to chat to you, sir. All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up on First Move, the coronavirus impact on Africa, how the largest e-commerce company on the continent is navigating the challenges of the pandemic. We'll talk to the CEO of Jumia after this. Welcome back to First Move. It's a big week for retailers. Walmart, Target and Alibaba set to show their e-commerce performance when they report earnings this week. It comes after Jumia, a company known as Africa's Amazon and Alibaba. Wow. Reported a growing shift towards online shopping across the continent. Jumia currently operates in more than 10 nations across the African continent. And joining us now is the Jumia CEO, Sasha Poignanek. Sasha, fantastic to have you on the show. COVID has been a challenge and you have a pretty diverse business. Just talk me through the net impact because we have seen widening losses for the company. Yes, it's been uh, very much, uh, you know, a, a work in progress and we are seeing the impact every day. We just reported our results a week ago and uh, from a usage perspective, we've seen a bit of a mixed bag with certain areas of the business doing very well and some areas doing less well and mainly due to some uh, you know challenges that sometimes we face in terms of supply and logistics where we face those challenges of course the demand is uh, is not as strong where we are not facing those 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 challenges then we have a lot of demand so it's you know from a top line perspective it's a mixed bag and uh, from a bottom line perspective it's been a pretty good quarter for us where we have started to reduce our loss and i think that is a good step you've got groceries you've got logistics you've got um a sort of business place a marketplace for businesses to come onto the platform and use. You've also got a payments business too. That's a lot going on across lots of diverse African nations. You've reduced by three the number of nations that you're working in. Do you need to hone further and just focus on perhaps three, four, five nations in Africa and get those right first? Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of service, Julia, it's it's a good question that you're asking. We are essentially connecting sellers with consumers. And those sellers, they may be selling fashion items, grocery, but at the end of the day, this is an e-commerce business, right? So from a core offering, we really operate e-commerce. And then we have one additional, if you will, service, which is food delivery, which is very complementary to the e-commerce because it's about 
bringing physical goods to consumers, but with a one-hour delivery, right? So from a, an offering perspective, we're not that diverse in the sense that we have really e-commerce and food delivery. Then payment is both for us something that we need to do because we want to have consumers transact with Jumia Pay instead of cash on delivery. So it's more of an enabler of our business that we are turning into a business opportunity. So from an operating model perspective, it's it's not that complex really. And then from a geographical perspective, you know, uh, we were very sad, of course, to exit those three geographies and we are now active in 11 countries. And this presence enables us to have a lot of uh, advantage uh, as, as a company, right? We get a lot of economies of scale. We get a lot of uh, also partnerships with key brands who want to operate into all those countries. We get a lot of learnings and mobility for our talent. And at the end of the day, this is also important from a macro perspective, as you have seen, just when we reported last week, we had a good quarter, although Nigeria was not so good because of the of the of the COVID situation. So it's also a very good benefit for us to be very diverse in terms of geographical exposure and have some diversity in our portfolio of geographies. Talk to me about payments because this is an area that excites me. Although when I when I look at countries like Kenya or Ghana, the the governments there were pushing in light of COVID-19 to see greater focus on digital payments, which I thought was fascinating. You've got pretty stiff competition in Nigeria, too. What differentiates your product? Mm -hmm. Payment is very exciting space in general and, and industry. And the way we are approaching the opportunity is to very much bring the Jumia users to Jumia Pay by making them trust the online payment on the platform a little bit if you want like eBay and PayPal did back in the days right so you have to think the consumers are on Jumia and they are in the mindset of transacting right so that is the best case and that's mindset for us to bring Jumia Pay to them and from there once they have created a Jumia Pay wallet to create more opportunities for them to use it and create more opportunities for them to save time and save money so really the way we are approaching the opportunity is to drive the adoption of the payment platform through Jumia, which is a transactional engine to drive that. And then once the consumers are on Jumia Pay, then we can create more you know, use cases and more opportunities for them to benefit and access financial services. And I think if you look, there's a lot of different uh, players who are trying to tackle the opportunity in different directions. For us, the the you know the asset that we have is we have the use case we have the the the, the eBay for PayPal if you if you see what I mean and it's the same thing also in China with Alibaba and Alipay when you have I a use case and when an engine to drive the adoption it's uh, more powerful and more more. I would say relevant to the users. I think everyone sees the opportunity, whether it's in e-commerce or in digital payments on the on the continent. It's just the execution that's the challenge here. You said in your IPO, and obviously if I look at the share price since the IPO, it's been pretty challenged that your path to profitability focuses on 2022. Is that still feasible in your mind or do you need to push back that time horizon? It's a good question and, you know, we have taken away sort of the discussion on the timing because in a way 2022, you know, especially now if you consider the COVID and everything is, is something which is anyway too far to talk about. And what we have 
focused on instead is to say, look, we want in the next few quarters, and that was six months ago, so in the next four or five quarters, to show clear progress, clear milestones, and a clear trend towards profitability, right? And that means that we want to reduce our absolute uh, you know, loss every hmm. quarter, we, that we are getting profitable after fulfillment every quarter, and that things are moving in the right direction, right? So. I think for us, the focus now is the execution in 2020. And then yes. as we <laughs> do that, then we may we may give another time horizon. But for now, we're really focused on, you know, walking the talk this year of, you know, this path to profitability. Makes sense to me, sir. Stay in touch. We want to keep uh, track of your progress. Uh, Sasha Poignanet, uh, the CEO of Jimmy. Great to chat to you. Um, we'll keep in touch. Thank you. Take care. Right. Thank you. Coming up on First Move, the NASCAR drivers racing to praise frontline workers. That's after this. NASCAR's first super We're racing to the first move finish line today with a very special NASCAR race. Drivers returning to the track this Sunday for the Real Heroes 400, an event held with empty stadiums and doctors and nurses opening the race from afar. Watch this. Drivers paying their own tributes to the staff, covering up their own names and replacing them with names of healthcare heroes. The event, part of the Real Heroes Project, an initiative by more than a dozen sports leagues to pay tribute to medical professionals fighting COVID-19, now and always, to our healthcare heroes. That's it for the show. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.